across Hong Kong. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Wednesday the 21st of September. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines. China kept its benchmark lending rates unchanged at a monthly fixing on Tuesday, in line with expectations. The one-year loan prime rate, which is the rate at which corporations borrow from commercial banks, was kept at 3.65%. The five-year LPR, which is linked to household mortgages, was unchanged at 4.30%. Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee promised Tuesday to create maximum room for the city to reconnect with the world. He stressed the importance of an orderly approach to easing quarantine requirements and other travel rules. Huang Luchan, who's Deputy Director of the State Council's Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, supported Mr Lee's comments at a rare press conference in Beijing. He said Hong Kong doesn't have to choose between opening up to the world and the rest of the country, and he signalled the SAR has Beijing's blessing to ease travel restrictions. The UN General Assembly, the annual gathering of world leaders in New York, has opened with an in-person meeting after two years of pandemic restrictions. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres warned of a winter of global discontent. He called on all developed economies to tax profits from fossil fuels, and dedicate the funds both to compensate for damage from climate change and to help people struggling with high prices. As leaders discussed the war in Ukraine, Russian-backed forces announced they were going ahead with a move the West has long warned against. Referendums on annexation and joining Russia. Four Moscow-controlled regions in Ukraine will hold votes this week, a step which Western powers and Kiev immediately denounced as a sham. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson at IMA Asia, Sean DeBow from Eurozone Capital Asia, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, US stocks fell and government bond yields rose ahead of the Fed rates decision. The S&P 500 lost 1.1%. To end at 3,856, all S&P sectors ended the session in the red. The Dow dropped 313 points, or 1%, to 30,706. The Nasdaq Composite Index retreated 1% to 11,425. Shares of automaker Ford closed 12.3% lower, its biggest one-day drop in almost 12 years, and shedding $7 billion US dollars in market value. The company said it would take a $1 billion hit from inflation-related costs and parts supply shortages that will push third-quarter earnings below analysts' expectations. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index dropped 1.1%. London's FTSE 100 fell 0.6%, and Russia's ruble-denominated Moex stock index slumped almost 9% after Moscow moved to annex-occupied regions of Ukraine. Hong Kong stocks recovered from six-month lows on Tuesday ahead of the Fed meeting. The Hang Seng Index jumped 215 points, or 1.2%, to 18,781. Technology shares led the gains, with the tech index up 2%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index rose 0.2% to 3,122. 
Chinese electric vehicle maker Zhejiang Leap Motor Technology is seeking to raise as much as $1 billion in what would be Hong Kong's largest IPO this year. Leap Motor plans to raise as much as 8.1 billion Hong Kong dollars from selling around 131 million shares in a range of 48 to 62 Hong Kong dollars each. The IPO will have five cornerstone investors buying 308 million US dollars worth of shares. Pricing is expected on September the 23rd and shares are due to start trading on September the 29th. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil this morning is 1.5% lower at $90.62 a barrel. Gold slipped 0.7% and is at $1,666 an ounce. U.S. Treasury yields have climbed to the highest level in over a decade. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield rose 7 basis points to 3.57%. That's its highest closing level since April 2011. The more interest rate sensitive two-year note edged three basis points higher to 3.97%. That's the highest since October 2007. And the yield curve is around its most inverted since September 2000. The US dollar index continues its stratospheric rise. It's half a percent firmer this morning and close to a 20-year high. The euro has slipped below parity to 99.5 cents. The Japanese yen is a third of a percent weaker at 143.61. Sterling is down half a percent at $1.13 and three quarter cents and eight Hong Kong dollars and 93 cents. The offshore Chinese yuan is trading at 7.03 versus the dollar. Bitcoin is down over 3% at 18,800. And an unhappy picture around Asian stock markets this morning. In Australia, first of all, the SX200 down 0.9%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 also off 0.9%. Shortly after the markets open, the Cosby in South Korea is down half a percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 180 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 809, much to talk about. A great panel of guests for you this morning. Sitting here with me in Broadcasting House, we have Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter and Sean, and, and good evening. And over in our Queensway studio, we find Sean DeBeau, who's Chief Executive Officer at Eurozone Capital Asia. Morning, Sean. Very good morning, Mark and Peter. And over in Washington, D.C., as always on a Wednesday, our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Barry, I'm going to kick off with you because it's a big week, isn't it, for central bank meetings. Of course, the Fed is meeting, but lots of others as well. The Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the Swiss National Bank, Norway's Central Bank, uh, here in Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia and Taiwan Central Banks, all expected to raise rates. Hasn't got off to a good start because Sweden's Central Bank yesterday kicked off this set of meetings with a surprise rate hike. The Reichsbank raised interest uh, rates by 100 basis points to one and three quarter percent said the policy rates will continue so barry we haven't uh, got off to a good start but really these central banks now we're moving into territory we haven't been in before aren't we because they're moving now into uh, restrictive monetary policy territory we haven't been there uh, in order to fight inflation since the early 1980s yes i think you're right on that peter this is unprecedented because um 
we are in, with the exception of China, and that's a very important exception, perhaps Japan, we are in a global period of monetary tightening. All that means is that economic activity is deliberately being slowed, and it also means that uh, unemployment is likely to rise in those areas without economic growth now, and particularly in Europe. But it is amazing that it has now extended to all of those central banks, countries that you just mentioned, and even in, through the emerging markets. South Africa is, is in a rate-tightening cycle. The mm. Southeast Asian countries are in the same. And it's all to fight inflation, which is a noble cause. But my goodness, there are side effects. I suppose what markets have got to get used to now uh, is where this is all going to end, isn't it? Uh, originally, they thought maybe uh, 3% was uh, the target, but we're going to be there already uh, if the Fed raises interest rates by 75 basis points later tonight, as as expected. So we've got to get used to rates now maybe going up to, what, 4.5% perhaps by next year? Well, I think certainly on short-term uh, interest rates, Peter, uh, we're going to see a Fed funds rate to reach 4% by the end of the year. And uh, this will be, uh, all expectations are, the, as you just said, a third 0.75% interest rate rise in Fed funds by the central bank of the United States. And that mirrors and echoes right through the, through the entire world. And it is unprecedented because you have a dollar that is rising. And of course, higher interest rates mean that the housing sector is really buffeted by this. You have interest rates on a 30-year mortgage here in the States now that have crossed 6%. So the housing sector in the States is, is just shocked by this rapid increase in interest rates. Sean, of course, the one monetary, um, central bank I didn't mention there, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, of course, they're going to have to uh, follow tomorrow whatever the Fed uh, does. But we are now getting into sort of, um, well, I wouldn't say nosebleed territory, but certainly rates that are much, much higher than we've been used to for a long, long time. Yes, Peter, we are in an area that hasn't been seen for a very long time in Hong Kong. And when people think about that, I think the key thing to to consider is what is the impact on the Hong Kong banking system and the Hong Kong property market. Uh, the Hong Kong property market throughout all of these uh, tumultuous years that we've had in the last couple of years in Hong Kong has been reasonably stable in aggregate and when looked at over that period. Will rising rates chip away at that? And on the banking side, what we're thinking about is both the impact on stability and the profits. I think that Hong Kong banks are very stable, and we don't have to be concerned about the creditworthiness of Hong Kong banks. But we do have to worry about profits, because it is definitely the expectation that as rates rise, the propensity for Hong Kong consumers to take mortgages will fall, and that will reduce the top-line turnover of Hong Kong-listed banks. We are, we are seeing the impact already, aren't we? I mean, over the weekend, the new uh, projects over at Kai Tak, they did sell a single apartment there and one in ten people now are estimated to have losses on their sales of, of property. It is starting to have an impact, quite a big impact, isn't it? It is having an impact, but what we have to keep in mind that Hong Kong has some of the tightest ted, uh, credit policies in the world when it comes to residential mortgages. When we look back at the previous crisis starting around 2008, we actually did not see any meaningful uh, degree of defaults or distressed selling because Hong Kong has a very strong policy 
policy on uh, minimum deposits and the the ratio of people's income to their mortgage payments. So while this could slow consumer consumption in Hong Kong because people are more concerned about uh, paying their mortgage than they are about buying that incremental gadget in the store or bag, so that that's what concerns me. When I think about the U.S. market and Barry, you were just mentioning it, I think it's is to consider that this is a bit circular as mortgage rates go higher, and you've noted that they're crossing 6%, that takes the incremental consumer in the United States out of the house buying market and not entering a new household. That keeps them in the renting market. That pushes rental prices up, and we've seen extreme rental increases on a year-on-year basis in major U.S. cities, and that pushes up the the accommodation portion of U.S. inflation Mm -hmm. in both core CPI and headline CPI. And that has been a real problem for the Fed, is that accommodation costs keep going up. I think so according, to the latest, according to the latest figures, I think now uh, in the latest CPI number, about a quarter of the rise is due to uh, accommodation rental costs. And the good thing about that, Peter, is that we don't have that circumstance in Asia. In most of the compositions of CPI baskets, consumer price indexes, we don't have a meaningful portion going to uh, accommodation costs. And that even being said, we haven't seen a meaningful increase across Asia in accommodation costs. The notable exception is Singapore, who was on a very tight situation and has had a moderate Mm. amount of inflow of bankers. I suppose, Mark, um for companies and, and members of, um, of, of your group, what they've got to start thinking about now is lower profits going forward, haven't they? Because this is going to impact their earnings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and restructuring as well. And of course, several economies are, are in Asia particularly are problematic. Barry referred to uh, Japan having sort of reverse policy of, of the U.S. in the sense of, 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 uh, of keeping, uh, keeping interest rates very, very low. Well, you know, the problem of inflation has started to hit there in a, in a big way by Japanese standards. Mm. Uh, the deflation for many years, uh, the target was 2%. It's now approaching 3%. Uh, the August uh, producer price index was 9% year on year. The eighth straight month at 9% or higher. Uh, we know weak yen may lift the situation further. All these are coming in. It's approaching 145. It may get, uh, may even weaken, weaken further. So the, so the government has to move very quickly and don't have all the levers that, for example, China has, mm. which is also following a similar policy. I mean, you mentioned Japan. That was one of two inflation shockers we've had over the last 24 hours. Japan's consumer inflation rates increased 2.8% a year ago. Uh, from a year ago, that's the highest pace in nearly eight years. But in Germany, producer prices, they jumped almost 46% month on month. It's the highest uh, increase on record. It seems that despite all these rate rises, we're still not getting inflation out of the system. You know, it doesn't seem so. And of course, Germany, others can comment more, more better than I can, but certainly energy, it's energy and, and energy that's really helping to drive that, which, of course, raises questions for the EU as a whole, since Germany is sort of the anchor of, of that organization, especially economically. Mm. Um, Barry, I suppose the other thing we've got to watch out for, we, markets seem to be pretty certain that the Fed's going to raise interest rates by 75 basis points. But we also get the dot plot tonight, don't we? It's the first revision since June, which is where FOMC members say where they think rates 
are going to be uh, in the in the future. And we also get their estimates for unemployment and inflation going forward as well and GDP growth. So in many ways, this is an important meeting, isn't it? It's not just about what how much the Fed raises rates. Yes, you're right. I mean, in this uh, dot plot business is uh, only, what, two, three years old and it gets a lot of attention and it's quite important. But I think there's remarkable unanimity among Federal Reserve governors and central bank presidents around the world that you've got to stop this inflation problem. And uh, that will happen, but it's going to happen at the price of a, of a big slowdown. I, mean, I commend Sean for mentioning this circular factor in the United States in terms of people who can't get mortgages and drop out of the housing purchase market and, and boost up rents because rents remain very high and they're going higher. But look, Peter, you identify the problem of Germany. Germany, as the lead economy in Europe, has really taken the stance that they really want to separate completely from Russian oil and gas. Mm. That's what this is all about because of the Ukraine war. Well, I mean, no one is going to argue with their solidarity with Ukraine. But my goodness, were they aware of the cost of this? Because all of those pipelines, both gas and oil, particularly gas, that are coming across Eastern Europe into Germany, uh, if you cut all of that off, of course you're going to get these energy price rises. Now, I suppose the, the only glimmer of hope might be that because these producer prices have risen so quickly, perhaps when winter actually arrives in two or three months' time, uh, some of these prices may retreat. But you can't do LNG. You can't have the United States exporting. It takes so much time to build the infrastructure for that. It's just not going to happen. Hmm. Let, let me ask you about a comment, uh, all three of you, in fact, that Professor Nouriel Roubini made overnight. Uh, he's a very well-known economist. He is known, though, as Dr. Doom, I should warn you in advance. He says that he sees a stagflation like in the 1970s. He sees a massive debt distress as in the global financial crisis. He said it's not going to be a short and shallow recession. It's going to be severe, long and ugly. Sean, what, what do you make of that? I think that there is a lot of people who are concerned about the impact of inflation and how that impacts their portfolio. And all of us at Arizon, we're thinking about that. And what we have to do is consider what the, the likelihood of this and consider how to make money. We think there are th two key areas to make money in this circumstance and to protect your portfolio. Number one is through investing in agriculture-related equities. And second is through new energy. Agriculture, because we are certainly, due to these circumstances, seeing bottlenecks and uh, issues with climate that is causing much lower yields in corn, wheat, rye, palm, uh, and palm oil. And we're seeing a movement of the bread basket away from Central Europe towards Latin America and Central Asia. And to us, that provides an opportunity. One of the controversial ones is biofuel, because while it does drive demand, it also takes away uh, food stuff from people's bellies. The mm. second area is what we think is very important during a period of high inflation, which is pricing power and companies that have price, uh, price setters. And that area to us is new energy. If we've learned anything from what like Barry was just annotating, did Germany really know what they were getting into? 
Well, what everyone now knows is that unless you've got a secret reserve under your soil of fossil fuels, you better be focusing on new energy because then you are the master of your energy supply for your citizens. And the, where is the larger producer of new energy, be it solar, wind, hydro, uh, uh, bio? It's all in Asia. And so we think there are fantastic opportunities in greater China markets to benefit from the challenges that are happening now with energy as, as countries and individuals move. Nearest term, we think rooftop solar. Yeah, well, and and certainly I I agree agree strongly with Sean what he's said on energy. In terms of Mr. Robini, he always is, he generally is is pretty negative. He's not exactly the most upbeat, mm. but at the same time, when has he's been all, right though, hasn't he? Yes, he, he often has been right, at least partially right. What he does is recognize the risks mm. and mm. recognize the implications of some of those risks and what we have to worry about. And so, uh, I hope he's. I hope he's not completely right this time, but it's, he certainly has picked out some of the areas where we have to be concerned. Is stagflation a word that's being used by, by your member companies? Yeah, well, of, of course it is, because, because there are aspects that are, that are emerging, especially in, in the U.S. and, and various, in various other economies. And, you know, obviously it's, a, it's another challenge, and, trying to, and they're trying to restructure to figure out how they can make money mm. in, in, this, in this climate. And, you know, Sean is, is suggesting some ways, at least that some people can, I hope. Barry, are you, are you hearing the word stagflation used over, over there? Is Nouriel Roubini right or is he being too pessimistic? Well, you do hear the word, and I think uh, myself that, that it, is, uh, it does not apply in the current situation. I mean, those of us who lived through the 1970s, we had uh, constant uh, inflationary pressure, and particularly on wage increases. You just mm. don't see that, despite what happened with uh, the rail uh, price increase, the, the costs that were coming that the President of the United States has endorsed. That's a big increase, but it's not widespread. You're not seeing it. And you have seen gasoline prices come down substantially here in the States. If you want to talk stagflation, I could buy that for Europe, particularly for Central Europe, maybe even for Britain, but not in the States. The Federal Reserve, by raising interest rate, assures that it will have some tools. In other words, if you take Fed funds to 4% by the end of the year, that gives you, what, 4% that you can reduce rates if they mm -hmm. really have a, a serious recession that perhaps we're in right now. Clearly, the financial markets are telling us we're in a bear market in equities here in the States, and it's likely to get worse. But stagflation? I don't think so. The biggest worry is Europe among our members, for sure, is to mm -hmm. underline what, what Barry says. The U.S., as he said, is is not as clear. The other issue I just want to raise very briefly is availability of money, especially in China. What many, what many of our members, and especially the, their partners in China, are fi fi finding that no matter how cheap and available money is with this with low interest policy, borrowers aren't wanting to borrow They so just don't much. want to borrow, do they? Yeah, there's no growth, and banks don't want to lend. Mm. And that combination doesn't work very well. That's the liquidity trap, isn't yes, it? Yes, liquidity, liquidity, liquidity famous trap. liquidity trap. Let's turn our attention to Hong Kong. Chief Executive John Lee promised yesterday to create maximum room for the city to reconnect with the world. He stressed the importance of an orderly approach to easing quarantine requirements. All sorts of rumours going around, and I should emphasise they are rumours about uh, the quarantine uh, restrictions being replaced with seven-day home medical surveillance. The South China Morning Post uh, was saying that 
had information that the cabinet had already agreed um, to that. But let me ask you, Mark, first of all, what do your members want to see? Is If we did go to, for example, zero plus seven, so we moved the, the hotel quarantine requirements, uh, had seven days of home quarantine, is that going to be enough to get people coming back to Hong Kong? Short answer, no. No, they uh, they want the everywhere else except China, of course, mainly except China, has has really is really living with COVID, and as as several medical specialists have said over the past few years, uh, past few days, it's become endemic in in Hong mm-hmm. Kong. At least that's their view. So the question is, are we going to move quickly? And this is something that's being being uh, pushed by not only international business organizations, but of course local ones as well, because it's really hurting their business. And the hope, yeah, there is hope because we're moving forward. This new chapter that the chief executive is talking about is encouraging, and uh, we do seem to be moving in the right direction. But it's taking some time, not surprisingly, and it's a question of whether you can reverse what's happened already with with individuals and some companies moving away and being reluctant to to come back, not sure what's going to happen next when they have opportunities elsewhere. Well, Mark, maybe I can take the other side of that, is I think in in the finance sector, which I'm in, that this seven days of home medical surveillance is going to be a meaningful change because right now we are starved for for human capital in Hong Kong. And if we can get people to start coming back, will you come to Hong Kong if you can do an interview? Yes, if I don't have to spend time in a hotel. Will you start remembering Hong Kong as the Asia hub and doing trips, day trips, week, you know, three-day trips? Yes, you will. That'll change things. So I think that this step that our chief executive is proposing is something that will be very positive for the finance sector, and we will start to see the velocity of activity in the finance sector and the sectors that rely on finance to improve. Let me ask you both then something that Huang Luchan said. His deputy director of the State Council's Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, um, he said it's not very appropriate to say that Hong Kong is experiencing an emigration wave. He said Hong Kong is entering a new phase of becoming more prosperous from disarray uh, to good governance. Um, He said he pointed to population statistics And he said a decline in Hong Kong's population has been caused by multiple factors and population mobility is not a new phenomenon. Uh, Mark, you kick off. You represent 400 members. Are they seeing a brain drain or is it a figment of our imagination? It's not a figment. But, but, you know, that it's not wrong that this has occurred in Hong Kong before. And it's possible that some of them will come back. But in many cases, you know, for example, one company had a thousand people here sourcing mm-hmm. sourcing products. They're in Singapore now. Is it like nineteen ninety seven? They're not going to move. Back. I think it's a it's a little different because some, especially employees, sometimes have moved because of education needs, because of mm-hmm. children's needs, and so on. And it's not clear how quickly they're going to move back. Some will move back, but I agree that Hong Kong's future still is is promising in many ways. It just may be a little bit different in terms of the of the people that are here and the people that drive it, and certainly financial services, the area that Sean is in, is going to be a, a leading indicator. Sean, in 30 seconds, what are your thoughts? I think that Hong Kong is experiencing a change in sectors. We're seeing an outflow of people from the luxury sector, as we see Hainan Island as the key point for luxury. Uh, garment sector is moving to uh, 
Thailand, Singapore as South Asia is the hub for low-end manufacturing of clothing. On the other hand, Hong Kong will, once the restrictions are left, continue to be a hub for finance, particularly for the Greater Bay. And we're going to start to see those young middle managers coming in, which is the lifeblood of Hong Kong. But Hong Kong is changing. And, and all of us have been here for a long time in Hong Kong. We've seen many cycles. This is the next cycle. Harry, final word to you. President Biden said yesterday uh, the pandemic is over. Is, is that what you think there? Is that what other people are saying? Well, that's, that's what the president has said. But uh, no, I don't think it is over. Uh, you still see um, people who are very worried about it. And, uh, uh, the, you know, you have a lot of cases now in Hong Kong, but so do we. So mm -hmm. it's premature. But let's not forget, we've got uh, midterm elections coming up uh, in early November. OK, well, thank you all very much for your uh, thoughts this morning. You heard there our international economics correspondent, Barry Ward. Sean DeBow, Chief Executive Officer at Eyes on Capital Asia. And Mark Michelson, who's chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets this morning. The SX200 in Australia down 1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan off 0.9%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea, that's down 0.6%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 180 points lower. Stay tuned for back chat coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast. Uh, one or two showers at first. Dry during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 31 degrees. Sunny periods in the next few days. Windy during the weekend. 27 degrees right now. 77% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32. Here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. A former Secretary for Transport and Housing has called for a bolder step towards reducing quarantine for inbound travelers, saying the idea of zero plus seven may not be attractive enough for visitors or business travelers. It means no hotel quarantine, but seven days of monitoring when visitors cannot access certain premises. Currently, inbound travelers quarantine for three nights in a hotel with four days of monitoring. Anthony Chang from the Education University's Department of Asian and Policy Studies told RTHK that Hong Kong needed a roadmap to normalcy or it risked losing its competitive edge. We should take a bolder step because even with zero per seven, you have this seven, which may still be quite restrictive in terms of going to various places. And that may not be attractive enough to incoming visitors. At the same time, if you are business people coming to Hong Kong for important meetings, visiting their business in Hong Kong, well, you have this seven, which might still be discouraging compared to other places, for example, Singapore. France's President Emmanuel Macron has accused countries who've remained silent about Russia's attack on Ukraine of serving the cause of what he called Moscow's new imperialism. In a speech to the United Nations General Assembly in New York, Mr. Macron said the inaction of neutral countries risked destroying the international order. Those who keep silent today serve in spite of themselves or secretly with a certain complicity the cause of a new imperialism, of a contemporary cynicism that disintegrates our international order, without which peace is impossible. Which of you, which one of you would consider that the day something like this was done to you by a more powerful neighbor, the silence of the region and the world would be the best response? 
Hurricane Fiona is continuing to lash parts of the Turks and Caicos Island in the Caribbean with strong winds and heavy rain. Officials have warned of life-threatening flooding. The Category 3 hurricane has already caused major damage in the Dominican Republic and the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. The BBC's Wendy Urquhart reports. Fiona gathered strength before making landfall in the Dominican Republic. It swept across the island, packing winds of up to 184 kilometres an hour, ripping up crops and tearing the roofs off buildings. Several rivers burst their banks and the streets are littered with fallen trees, lampposts and debris. The National Hurricane Centre is warning that Hurricane Fiona will gather even more strength in the next couple of days to become a Category 4 storm, and the storm surge could raise water levels by more than 2 metres. U.S. prosecutors have charged 47 people for their alleged roles in a $250 million fraud scheme that exploited a program to feed children during the COVID pandemic. The FBI Director Christopher Wray described the case in Minnesota as the largest pandemic relief fraud scheme yet. You're listening